The lamp is burning. We're kicked back in a nice comfy chair in the darkness of a fall slash winter's eve. It has been a wonderful afternoon after a long workout and few things I find more therapeutic than kicking back with some early American history to read through, to discuss. Grateful for the technology available today for us to get a voice out there into the world in a way that was never really possible in this vehicle before or in this magnitude. Grateful to live in the greatest country in the world and grateful for a body that can be trained, a mind that can be disciplined, and the many blessings on blessings of life. On to another episode of American Reader, where we're going to look into Alexander Hamilton, his defense of the Croswell case, and the effects that it has had on freedom of the press as we know it today, and just a brief overview of the extremely long Hamiltonian expression of what freedom of the press should look like and why it's important. Jumping in here, let me give you a quick overview. Croswell is publishing things in this newspaper called The Wasp, things that are attacking his opponents, political opponents, and, of course, the Federalists and the Republicans, the two political parties at the time, using newspapers, the main medium, to get stuff out there, pamphlets, newspapers, things like that, a great direct access to the people, using these things to attack each other's parties and each other's characters, specifically, especially at this point as time has gone on, to give you a picture of where the country is at at this point. Thomas Jefferson is president in his first term, I believe. I'm pretty confident in that. Might fact check it, but um, he has just taken over from the one-term Adams administration, who himself took over for the two-term George Washington administration. At this point, I believe George Washington has passed away. The country is much more divided than it was at its founding and continuously working in that direction of division, the creation of two parties that kind of started with Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson, both as a part of George Washington's cabinet and his presidency, and then fell out of favor with each other with differing points of view on how the country should rise up to the occasion on the world stage, specifically with the financing that Alexander Hamilton put in place as treasurer and with all of the different ideas of what level of personal liberties and, the, and how far up on the list of priorities that should be as opposed to federal authority, state rights as opposed to country rights, what is enough to give up and what is enough to 
preserve because that was kind of the main difference. People on the Republican side feared that if we have we give any power to make a strong central government or a Congress that is paid, they'll become just bloodlust, corrupt with power and, and become this tyrannical government that we just broke away from in Britain. And Hamilton and the Federalists were kind of on the side of we won't have a country at all if you don't give up some power to a federal government because that's not a country. We're just going to continue the failing system under the Articles of Confederation, which predated our Constitution. The Constitution at this point is in full effect. That being said, many, if not all of the members of the Constitutional Convention at this time in 1802 were still alive, had written and debated and put out this document that founded our country and was ratified and that we're going off of themselves. And they themselves are bitterly divided on the interpretation of the words that they wrote. So this is not a new argument today that we are having about what is constitutional and what is not, about what did the Constitution mean, about how do we interpret laws and how is law built and set in our country, all of which we're going to touch on in Alexander Hamilton's defense of Croswell in this case. Because Hamilton, so much of Hamilton's work just sings right into today of things that Every time we read one of Hamilton's left-behind masterpieces, it's so easy to see the struggles that we have today, and it gives hope because you know that, okay, it's not just 2023, it's not just COVID, or it's not just cancel culture or whatever people are on to at the moment. These are, generally speaking, arguments that are natural to humanity and have been going on since the founding of our country more or less in one form or another and so that there's hope to be had in that to know that we're just we didn't just ruin everything and are now to this point division is healthy it is a healthy good sign of a functioning democracy if you know the day that we lose argument the day that all of our politicians just walk into congress and immediately agree on everything and just take one unified direction for the good of the country is the day that you should start breaking out the guns and the day that you should be deathly afraid because it does not take a long walk down that road that disturbingly trendy road as we've seen today to understand the ignorance of that when you put the good of civilization into a small group that is supposed to be representative of the whole. You're putting your faith to a destructive level into a small portion of humanity. Humanity that is fallible, that is sinned, that is fallen and living in a fallen world. And to do that, you're trusting that these are people that have the same idea of what is right and wrong as you do that will maintain that idea of right and wrong exactly to your standards and not differ from that or become corrupt or bitter about it over time or evolve into some deeper aspects of that right and wrong. And this is coming from, personally, I am a huge fan of objective truth and morality. I deeply believe there is so much to be valued in the right and the wrong, in all of these things that we have in place those are things that you know, throughout history taboos culture society right and wrong spirituality 
religion, different forms of government, all of these things are things that we look back on and build on as humanity. And with this postmodernism movement of the loss of objective truth and morality and and right and wrong just goes out the window and your whole life is suggested to be steered by whatever fleeting emotion you have. And then we wonder why people are reeling out of control, why suicide rates are skyrocketing, why mental illness is through the roof, all of these things. Well, when we destroy the framework of humanity as we've known it forever, at least as far as recorded human history goes, what do we expect from people? How could, how could we expect anything less? If anything, we should be grateful it's not worse. And it certainly will get worse the, the more we move in this direction. But I personally think humanity will swing back in that other direction, but we'll see. Um, either way, I'm a bigger believer in personal responsibility and ownership. So regardless of which way humanity swings, you're, you are responsible for you, not society. The president is not responsible for you. Your country is not responsible for you. Your work is not responsible for you. Your spouse is not responsible for you. You alone are responsible for your physical, mental, emotional, spiritual well-being and otherwise. And it's up to you to make that happen. Everything else is just icing on the cake. If it works, great. Take advantage of it. If it doesn't, you should expect that and you should have a plan. Take control of your life. But that's a rabbit trail. So let's get back here. Mr. Croswell has been convicted of libel. And it's important to note that at the time under the Sedition Acts where people could be sued for saying things that are mean about other people in the press, the defense for libel when you are brought to court and being accused of libel you couldn't use truth as a defense. You couldn't say, well, regardless of how it offended people, it was true or something like that. That that wasn't brought up in the court case. It was brought up, did you publish this because it offended somebody else? It was mean to you know, whoever you were writing about. And if they could prove that you, in fact, did write it, then you were convicted of libel. And the consequences that came with that typically fines or lighter prison sentences as much as can be said about you know a year of your human life in a prison is nothing to take too lightly so pretty serious consequences and after conviction mr croswell wants to appeal and i won't go so much into the names and the details of the cases but as I don't think that matters so much as the principle of why this is important because it steered the country in the direction of what we know as freedom of the press today and, and in some respects freedom of speech today because it, it paved the way to allow truth as a defense for libel. And Hamilton, as we're going to read here, does just a delightful job of pointing out the nuanced way that all of this just tangles with it with each other and does a great job of setting that stage to where eventually in the future that's the direction that the country will take but at the time he's convicted he wants to appeal and go to the supreme court he knows hamilton is the guy hamilton at this point has been out of politics he's stepped off the national scene he's lost a lot of favor with his own federalist party 
and doesn't have nearly the influence that he had had previously in his career at this point. He's kind of off that scene. He's focusing on his own law practice. I believe around this time he's building his own home um, with his family in LaGrange, is what he calls it, trying to become closer with his children, rebuild his relationship with Eliza after his affair with Mariah Reynolds and those kind of things. But Hamilton, being who he was, has a heart and a passion for this country and couldn't fully stay out of politics and everything that is happening. This particular case had a lot to do with Thomas Jefferson and accusations being made that Thomas Jefferson had paid for libelous articles to be written about his own political opponents, specifically John Adams, who was a Federalist, Thomas Jefferson being the Republican. He paid to have published really terrible things about George Washington, even after his death, things like that, accusations being made. And Hamilton and Jefferson were mortal enemies. They hated each other. Now, even at the time, it was pretty customary for people to be formal with each other in public while still just vehemently fighting each other behind the scenes. So they still had that decorum most of the time, most of the time, although there were recorded isolated incidents where they did not. But their relationships kind of started in Washington's cabinet during his presidency, different political ideas on the direction of the country, Washington tending to favor Hamilton more than Jefferson most of the time, usually ending up on the more Federalist side of the issue, and Jefferson getting bitter about it, and them being just divided and hating each other, being on the opposite of every issue. So they're constantly fighting each other, and now that Hamilton has lost a lot of favor with his own party, he's gotten off the national scene, he doesn't have a lot of influence, but he wants the influence, he wants the power, he misses it, and he he wants to regain that, just as very similar to his would-be killer in the future through the duel with Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr was very much the same way in the power and influence aspect. So Hamilton, it is easy to see why this would have been a tempting case for Hamilton to take on, a chance to influence a huge keystone issue that will be a cornerstone of our country as we see free freedom of the press is today, as we know. And also put Jefferson in his place, which is just an added bonus if you're Hamilton. So the case is being appealed after multiple denials from Hamilton because he is too busy, among other things. He is finally convinced by Mr. Croswell to defend him along with his partner, Kent. I believe it was John Kent or James Kent. You know, I keep forgetting the first names, but close enough. You can fact check me on that one too. They'll look it up for yourself if you're that interested, but Kent Croswell. Now we're going to go over a brief summary of this six plus article, six plus hour oratory from Hamilton about the importance of freedom of the press, which is not what he would have called it at the time necessarily, but he kind of touches on the dangers of press the press being completely out of control and doing whatever they want, while also balancing it with the idea that if we restrict people from writing what is true, simply because it may be offensive to the people that they're writing the truth about, 
where does that lead us as a country? And is that the country that we want to be? And it's just, it's beautifully done. I don't want to spoil too much, but we shall dive right in. So this is the brief, a brief summary of the argument of Alexander Hamilton in defense of Croswell in the Supreme Court at this point about really pushing for truth should be allowed as a defense for libel. It's not about did I write something bad about someone else, but did what I write come to be true? Or was it true when I wrote it? What was the intent that should be taken into consideration? Because at the time, they didn't care if it was true or what the circumstances were. They cared, did you write something mean about somebody? And that's why this edition, acts were extremely unpopular, and, but a necessary growing, growing pain for us as a country. And Hamilton. He said that the two great questions that arose in the cause were, one, can the truth be given in evidence? Two, are the jury to judge of the intent in the law? The first point might be more embarrassing, but the second was clear. The liberty of the press consisted in publishing with impunity truth with good motives and for justifiable ends, whether it related to men or to measures. To discuss measures without reference to men was impracticable. Why examine measures but to prove them bad and to point out their pernicious authors so that the people might correct the evil by removing the men? There was no other way to preserve liberty and bring down a tyrannical faction. If this right was not permitted to exist in vigor and in exercise, good men would become silent. Corruption and tyranny would go on, step by step in usurpation, until at last, nothing that was worth speaking or writing or acting for would be left in our country. Already a banger. Already just going in for the kill in true Hamilton form. He just has that discerning way of knocking you upside the head and dragging you in straight to the point. I love how he really immediately ties into offense aside. If people are not allowed to speak their truth, there are consequences. And if we are going to suppress the truth without looking at the complications, like why were they writing this libelous thing or offensive thing why were they writing this thing that someone was offended by or that people think is mean because that matters it matters why what was their intent were they doing it specifically to be malicious with no better reason or were they doing it because they are trying to expose the truth they are trying to balance justice in society and then he brings up these examples of if people are prevented from doing so that's how tyranny forms, and that's how tyranny stays in power, when the truth is silenced, and offense is a great way to silence the truth. Well, that was mean, so you can't say it. And boy, do, do we need to hear that today. How, how much does that sing into life in 2023, the world of cancel culture, the world of bigotry and racism at every corner with every word that comes out of your mouth? If you hurt my feelings... That's it. It's it's done. It's wrong. It's not allowed. It's taboo. You can't talk about it. Those kind of things. And he really is doing a great job of pointing out the danger of that. Don't suppress the truth for people's feelings. 
But he did not mean to be understood as being the advocate of a press wholly without control. He reprobated the novel, the visionary, the pestilential doctrine of an unchecked press. And ill-fated would be our country if this doctrine was to prevail. It would encourage vice, compel the virtuous to retire, destroy confidence, and confound the innocent with the guilty. Single drops of water constantly falling may wear out adamant. The best character of our country, he to whom it was most indebted, and who is now removed beyond the reach of calumny, felt its corrosive effects. No, he did not contend for this terrible liberty of the press, but he contended for the right of publishing truth, with good motives, although the censure might light upon the government, magistrates, or individuals. So he's saying, it's not, a, it's not that I want a completely out-of-control press. It's not that we want the press to be publishing all kinds of offensive and inaccurate things. It's that we need to recognize the sacred right of people to speak the truth regardless of who it is about and regardless of who it may offend, because that is going to be a, a huge part of what keeps our democracy together and what builds on people's natural freedoms and rights and individuals as individual citizens. It doesn't matter if they're government or magistrates or just individuals of lesser importance, but we need to allow the publishing of truth regardless of if it is offensive. <sighs> Beautifully said. To check upon the press ought to be deposited, not in a permanent body of magistrates as the court, but in an occasional and fluctuating body. The jury, who are to be selected by lot, judges might be tempted to enter into the views of government and to extend by arbitrary constructions the law of libels. In the theory of our government, the ex executive and legislative departments are operated upon by one influence and act in one course by the means of popular election. How then are our judges to be independent? How can they withstand the combined force and the spirit of the other departments? The judicial is less independent here than in England, and of course we have more reason and stronger necessity to cling to the trial by jury as our greatest safety. If you've enjoyed the American Reader podcast at any point in the past, I would encourage you to follow on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a rating, drop a comment, follow on socials at American Reader on Facebook would be the best place to follow, or follow my personal account at Jacob McDonald on Facebook or Instagram. Wherever you can find it, support, help us grow, share, like, interact, drop ideas, criticisms, love, hate, whatever it is, we're all about it. So join the cause, help us grow, and any support would be appreciated. Thanks. So the judicial branch, when he talks about here, this was a common concern for Hamilton. He... As part of the Constitutional Convention, a big part of what they did with the compromise between all the people involved was in the different size states and the population and all that. We see all these compromises, like in Congress, a compromise to represent both states individually and equally, like in the Senate, where every state gets two regardless of size. And then in the House of Representatives, where representation in that part of Congress is based on the size and the population of the state. So we see compromises like that throughout government in a variety of different ways to create checks and balances and hopefully create a system that has built in prevention of tyranny and abuse of power. 
And part of that was the different branches of government, the legislative, executive, and judicial. And a common concern for Hamilton, as we saw throughout his life and his writings, was that the judicial branch was the weakest and that he felt that it was prone to bullying and to misuse and abuse. And he had some good points on how it could be and was, and he often pushed for its protection. So we see that playing out here. Men are not implicitly entrusted. Men are not to be implicitly trusted in elevated stations. The experience of mankind teaches us that persons have often arrived at power by means of flattery and hypocrisy, but instead of continuing humble lovers of the people, have changed into their most deadly persecutors. Now, this is a fantastic, I mean, he does a great job of making a statement that really hits both sides of the argument. Just because someone is in an elevated station, say Congress or the president or whatever, does not automatically mean that they should be trusted. But trust is a very finely picked word and a very intentional word, I think, exactly right for that. I didn't vote for Joe Biden, but... And I don't just implicitly trust someone just because they're president, but I do respect them because they are president. I do respect the role. I didn't vote for Joe Biden, but I make a point every day of my life within reason as much as, you know, if I forget every once in a while. But I make a point to pray for his success, to pray for good decision making, for wisdom and discernment and for the success of his decisions because he's leading our country. Why shoot ourselves in the foot? We see, from a Christian perspective, if you'd like to see that, we've, see, we've seen throughout recorded human history that leaders are put in place for a reason, that they've attained that station many times with some sort of divine intervention, as we've seen, or even without divine intervention, even leaders that were brought up of unworthy causes, as he's talking about here, through flattery and hypocrisy and different things like that. Leadership is important, and we should be praying for their success, and I think that the position in itself does lend itself to respect, even if not trust, but also balanced with, I don't believe comedy should have any line. I love a good Biden tripping video or a good Mitch McConnell freezing up at the podium video. I mean, all of these, I, I think different positions are going to lend themselves two wider options for ridicule, but I'm pretty liberal when it comes to comedy. I think God has a sense of humor much more than we give him credit for. He created it. And that when you start to censor what can be said as a joke and what can be joked about, well, that's exactly what we're talking about here and the consequences of that. So interesting to point out. Lord Camden said that he had not been able to find a satisfactory definition of a libel. Here we see him pulling on English law and big names in English law, like Blackstone, Lord Camden, Lord Coke, different things like these people. And this is an important reminder for us today is the saying, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We had broken away from Great Britain, but thank God we had founding fathers who were wise enough to understand that, yes, they were tyrannical to us. Yes, it was necessary for a revolution and for us to break away and become our own country. 
But yes, also, that doesn't mean that they're stupid, and that doesn't mean that they aren't on to something because they are the most powerful empire in the world, and they have the most long-lasting, sustainable, and powerful government of the late 1700s at the time they were the world power. So we have something to learn from that. Hopefully we can take the good and shed the bad and make something better. But they didn't just say, well, they're stupid. We don't like them. So let's start from scratch. And thank God they did not. And it's a good reminder for us today as a society and for you and me today as individuals in your own life. Nothing new under the sun as the Bible teaches us. And you should always be looking to build on, not start from scratch. Don't be a hater. Just because someone has done something before, if there is hype, if there are things like that, humanity is a collective act of building on each other's successes and failures and efforts. And if you want to make some kind of change and impact on the world, pick up where someone else left off. It's a baton race. It's not starting from scratch every time and really any time. This is 2023. If you think you're starting from the ground level on something, well, I would argue there are very few circumstances where you could legitimately say that, if any. So interesting to see how they're pulling from English law here, and you'll see that as a theme throughout this this particular work, as this is his work as a lawyer, and throughout all of his writings. So he would venture, however, but with much diffidence, after that embarrassment which that great man had discovered, to submit to the court the following definition. A libel is a censorious or ridiculing writing, picture or sign, made with a mischievous and malicious intent towards government, magistrates, or individuals. So, quick note here, it should also give you encouragement and hope that when you hear these terms, it can be kind of intimidating, especially in history, when... When people are throwing around these key terms like libel and different things like that, and you don't know exactly what they mean, well, look at this Lord Camden, whoever that is himself from English law, as a person who devoted himself to the law in one of the greatest British empires that ruled the world at the time, had himself a trouble defining exactly what libel is, so... You know, if you if if you ever find yourself in a situation where you don't know what is going on in a room full of people, chances are you're probably not the only one. And that's a pretty common theme throughout human history, I feel like. According to Blackstone, it is a malicious defamation made public with intent to provoke or expose to public hatred and ridicule. The malice and intent enter into the essence of the crime and must be proved and are accordingly to be left to the jury as a parcel of the fact. The definition of Lord Coke does not oppose this result. He speaks of a libel as having a tendency to break the peace. This, also, is a fact to be proved to the jury, for the tendency depends upon time, manner, circumstance, and a must of necessity be a question of fact. Beautiful. Texts taken from the Holy Scriptures and scattered among the people may in certain times and under certain circumstances become libelous, nay, treasonable. These texts are then innocent, libelous, or treasonable according to the time and intent, and surely the time and manner and intent are matters of fact for a jury. It is the intent that constitutes the crime. This is a fundamental principle of jurisprudence. Whether crime or not will always depend upon intent, tendency, quality, manner, etc. And these must be matters of fact for the jury. The law cannot adjudge a paper to be a libel until a jury have found the circumstances connected with the publication. 
Very important point. This is the first time that he's really pushing. Let's look at the circumstances. What was their intent? Not what was the result, but what was the intent? Because that should matter. We should be better than these rote principles and laws without looking at the circumstances and the intent. That is important to look at. It's the reason that you go out and kill someone in society today and it's murder. You go out as an as a soldier of your country and you kill someone. Well, that is a legal proceeding in most circumstances, depending on, oh, well, again, depending on the circumstances. So it, the setting matters, the circumstances matters, the intent matters for anything. And the fact that the Sedition Acts at the time were not looking at the intent or the circumstances or the truth of what was being said, but simply did they write something mean about someone else was eventually the downfall of the whole thing and the thing that we don't like and look back on. It's interesting. One one interesting thing that stood out to me is you see a lot of scriptural references, which is a huge part of the founding of our country as a Christian nation of varying denominations. And you see them pulled a lot. Hamilton himself was not an especially pious person, I wouldn't say. I mean, I, we've seen through his actions, but I mean, I'm not going to pretend like that's an accurate judge of character. I mean, I want to make a point that Hamilton was a brilliant man. To say that Hamilton didn't care about his marriage or love his wife because he had an affair with another woman would be ridiculous. To say that he didn't love his family because he hurt his family so badly through the Mariah Reynolds affair is ridiculous. People sin, they falter, they mess up. And that is not a reason to give up, and that is not a reason to throw out their entire life. People, it's so easy to do it more so with historical figures that understanding, look back on them with grace and understanding that they were a product of their time. We see that when slavery is argued in Congress during this time a lot. You see a lot of the mix and match of like abolitionists who were benefiting from slaves or had slaves of their own that they were not freeing or things like that. Or on the other side, people that were pushing for slavery and thought it was great to have slavery in our country, but then didn't have slaves themselves and different things like that. So look back with grace and understanding that, you know, do you really, if, if you're lucky enough to be talked about at all beyond your death, which will be very few, if any of us, then do you want people talking about the mistakes you made in the in the lowest points in your life, or do you want them talking about your overall impact and things that matter to you and look back in your life with grace? So it's good to remember that. But back to my point, sorry to keep going off here, but you see these scriptural references, and while Hamilton himself was not even necessarily a super religious person as far as church attendance goes, he will, he did profess to have a Christian faith in a few different ways and had some influential preachers on his life and his wife, Liza, was very, very, uh, all of her life's work that we know of publicly was a Christian outpouring of love through orphanages and things like that. But Thomas Jefferson was atheist, and, you know, this case had a lot to do about the relationship and rivalry between Hamilton and Jefferson, and Jefferson was the president at this time, so... I don't know, just something to think about. But it is not only the province of the jury in all criminal cases to judge of the intent with which the act was done. As being parcel of the fact, they are also authorized to judge of the law as connected with the fact. 
In civil cases, the court are the exclusive judges of the law, and this arose from the nature of pleadings in civil suits. For anciently, matters of law arising in the defense were required to be spread upon the record by a special plea, and the jury were liable to an attaint for finding a verdict contrary to law. But in criminal cases, the law and fact are necessarily blended by the general issue, and a general verdict was always final and conclusive, both upon the law and the fact. Nor were the jury ever exposed to an attaint for a verdict in a criminal case, and this is decisive to prove that they had a concurrent jurisdiction with the court on questions of law, for where the law allows an act to be valid or definitive, it presupposes a legal and rightful authority to do it. This is a sure and infallible test of legal power. In England, trial by jury has always been cherished as the great security of the subject against the oppression of government, but it never could have been a solid refuge in security unless the jury had the right to judge of the intent and the law. I love that statement. The trial by jury, you don't just, the, the fact that we as a country value a person's right to walk into a courtroom and answer for crimes that they are accused of, not just to the government or in the form of a judge, but to a jury of their peers. That in itself is, a, is one of these built-in checks and balances to the government is not going to be the sole decider of your fate, but you are also going to be subject to your peers who can help act against the oppression of government and be that solid refuge and security. But if they're not allowed to look at the circumstances of why you did what you did or the intent behind why you did what you did and then match it up to the law, then what, what is the jury there for? That's why we need that human perspective. So, fantastic argument. The jury ought undoubtedly to pay every respectful regard to the opinion of the court. But suppose a trial in a capital case and the jury are satisfied from the arguments of counsel. The law authorities that are read in their own judgment upon the application of the law to the facts, for the criminal law consists in general of plain principles, that the law arising in the case is different from that which the court advances. They are not bound by their oaths, by their duty to their creator and themselves, to pronounce according to their own convictions. To oblige them in such a case to follow implicitly the direction of the court is to make them commit perjury and homicide under the forms of the law. The case of the seven bishops and fullers in Tuchin's cases are a series of precedents in favor of the right of the jury. The opposite precedents begin with Lord Raymond, but they have not been uniform nor undisputed. It has been constantly a floating and litigious question in Westminster Hall. A series of precedents only can form law. There can be no embarrassment in the court. They are at liberty to examine the question upon principles. The English Declaratory Act recites that doubts had existed, and being declaratory, it is evidence of the sense of the nation. The Marquis of Lansone observed in the House of Lords that the same declaratory bill had been brought in 20 years before and was then deemed unnecessary. The question how far the truth is to be given in evidence depends on how on the question of intent. For if the intent be a subject of inquiry for the jury, the giving of the truth in evidence is requisite as a means to determine the intent. Truth is a material ingredient in the evidence of intent. In the whole system of law, there is no other case in which the truth cannot be shown, and this is sufficient to prove the proposition which denies it in the present case to be a paradox. The Roman law permitted the truth to justify a liable, a lie. Bull. It's that that word is deceptively hard to say. You want to add the a in there and make it liable, but it's libel, libel. The Roman law permitted the truth to justify a libel, and this is the the crux of the argument that Hamilton is making here. That it's not that libel doesn't matter 
or is not a crime. It's that we need to look at the details of why this crime was committed because that matters. And the truth behind if someone is speaking the truth, that they are making offensive claims that are in fact true, that should be taken into consideration. Which, of course, we hold to today and and believe in that principle. Today, it's hard to imagine a world where we don't. Although, you know, thank God that that that's hard for us to imagine because those countries certainly do exist today. And it's not difficult to find. Just get outside of the American bubble anytime. You know, if, if you're a hater, if you're a complainer, get outside of the American bubble. Drop Drop a YouTube link into North Korea or Northwest China or Venezuela for a while and then come back and complain about what we're doing in America. Not that it couldn't be better. And thank God that you have the right to be a hater and complain as much as you want. But get some perspective. You are blessed beyond belief to not have to wake up worrying about your life or go to bed wondering if your kids are going to survive the night. Like, you know, our friends in Israel and, and the Gaza Strip and the West Bank and Ukraine and Russia and all of these people like that is life and has been life for all of human history for a long time. Thank God you get to live in this bubble where it's not ours. We are the 1% of the 1% of the 1% blessings on blessings. Grateful. Pray to God for it every day. Thank you, God for a body that can be trained, a mind that can be disciplined, and this opportunity to get our voice out into the world and make a difference in leisure instead of necessity. That's a beautiful blessing. So he looks back to Roman law even further back than the English government and starts to make his main point here. We should be allowed to produce truth as defense. And we should not be restricting truth based on whether or not it is offensive. The ancient English statutes prove also that in the root and origin of our law, falsity was an ingredient in the crime. And those statutes were declaratory of the common law. The ancient records and precedents prove the same thing, and they are the most authoritative evidence of the ancient law. In the celebrated case of the seven bishops, the court permitted the defendants to prove the truth of the facts stated in the petition. That case is also very important in various views. It establishes the necessity of inquiring into the circumstances and intent of the act. It was an instance of a firm and successful effort to recall the principles of the common law and was an important link in the chain of events that led on to the glorious area of the revolution. In Fuller's case, Lord Holt allowed the defendant to go into the proof of the truth of the charge, but while he said he advocated the omission of the truth, he subscribed to the doctrine of Want's case, and more, that the truth ought not only to be given in evidence to determine quo animo, the act was done. It ought not to be a justification in every case, for it may be published maliciously. It may be abused to the gratification of the worst of passions, as in the promulgation of a man's personal defects or deformity. Here he's kind of referencing the kid, you know, you're ugly. Well, don't talk to people like that. Well, it's true. They're like, okay, well, you know, just because it's true doesn't mean it needs said, and that can lead to an abuse of its own. So it also needs to be looked at in tandem with, was it done maliciously? Was this published solely with the intent to hurt? Because even if it was true, if it was done maliciously, that is still something that needs taken into consideration. And it needs to be these 
interestingly, these, these three, it's like, it, it's kind of interesting. The, the similarities there between if we're looking at libel, we're looking at, did they do it? Why did they do it? And was it true? We have the three branches to look at there where we have the three branches of government with the judicial executive and legislature, which he's also drawing from as well. The court of star chamber was the polluted source from whence the prosecutor's doc, the prosecutor's doctrine was derived. That is not the court from which we are to expect, expect principles and precedents friendly to freedom. It was a most arbitrary, tyrannical, and hated tribunal under the control of a permanent body of magistrates without the wholesome restraints of a jury. The Whigs in England after the revolution, in order to prop up their power adopted as in Franklin's case, the arbitrary maxims of that court, which have been reprobated at the revolution, and this ought to serve as a monetary lesson to rulers at the present day, for such is the nature, progress, and effect of the human passions. The right of the giving truth in evidence in case of libels is all important to the liberties of the people. Truth is an ingredient in the eternal order of things in judging of the quality of acts. Oh, baby, look at that. What a banger. Highlight that one. Get it on t-shirt, boys. Truth is an ingredient in the eternal order of things in judging of the quality of acts. We have lost truth as a society today in the postmodernism movement that we are in. Objective truth was the very first victim. It's everything that so many are driving our society away and not just in your face at parades or it just it's there. It's there. It almost gets me so worked up, but I don't want to be a hater either. So, you know, it's just beware, beware of where society is going because postmodernism is the loss of objective truth. And when we lose truth, we lose the fabric of society. When we reject objective truth, when we reject society's framework and structures, albeit imperfect, when we throw it out, as we discussed earlier, you're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. It's not that the framework is perfect. This is a fallen world. There are justices, injustices, I suppose both, and there are abuses of power there are bad examples of things certainly but to reject all taboo and all cultural framework that humanity has built up over time and just say everything goes whatever your latest most base impulse is that's what should determine the course of your life moving forward and what your next step is. And then we wonder why suicide rates are through the roof, why mental illness is skyrocketing, why we're having to come up with all kinds of different names to cover every new disease and just crisis on humanity as we're destroying ourselves. Well, we've ripped apart the framework. We've lost truth as an ingredient in the eternal order of things. We've lost truth in judging of the quality of our acts. That's a scary thing. Stand for something. I have so much respect for people that stand for things. I'm a conservative, white, heterosexual, Christian male. And I know what I stand for. I have objective truth. But I have so much respect for someone who is the opposite of all of those things, but knows what they stand for. They know this is what's right and wrong in my mind. And even if it's something that I disagree with and something that I don't think is true or right, and the way that God intended 
his creation to operate, I have so much respect for the person that has chosen to stand to say that this is truth, this is right and wrong, to tell me that like, I don't, I don't agree with your conservative, Christian, heterosexual, white, male life. Great. Well, what do you agree with? What do you stand for? Let's talk. Let's converse with love and respect and vigor and stand for something. That's a start. Know where you're at and what you are about and stand for it. Don't try to please everybody and don't try to pretend we live in a world where Freedom means everybody does what they want all the time. That is anarchy, and anarchy is death and destruction. It leads to nowhere. You can't have there has to be a framework. Make one for yourself. You're responsible for you. Stand for something. He hoped to see the axiom that truth was admissible, recognized by our legislative and judicial bodies. He always had a profound reverence for this doctrine, and he felt a proud elevation of sentiment in reflecting that the act of Congress, which had been the object of so much unmerited abuse and had been most grossly misrepresented by designing men, established this great vital principle. It was an honorable, a worthy, and glorious effort in favor of public liberty. He reflected also with much pleasure on the fact that so illustrious a patriot as Mr. J had laid down correctly and broadly the power of the jury. These acts were monuments, were consoling vestiges of the wisdom and virtue of the administration and character that produced them. He maintained that the common law applied to the United States, that the common law was principally the application of natural law to the state and condition of society, that the Constitution of the United States used terms and ideas which had a reference to the common law, which was the English common law is what they're talking about, and were inexplicable, inexplicable without its aid, that the definition of treason, of the writ of habeas corpus, of crimes and misdemeanors, etc., were all to be expounded by the rules of the common law, that the Constitution would be frittered away or borne down by factions, the evil genii, the pest of republics, if the common law was not applicable, that without this guide any political tenant or indiscretion might be made a crime or pretext to impeach, convict, and remove from office the judges of the federal courts, that if we departed from common law principles we would degenerate into anarchy and become the sport of the fury of conflicting passions, the transition from anarchy was to despotism to an armed master. Leave it to Hamilton to make my point so much better than I could ever make it. The man was a poet and put it to such relevant, tangible, accessible use to the common man. Why is anarchy? The child likes to think, well, freedom means everybody does what they want all the time. Freedom means you get to be happy all of the time. Freedom means no rules. And in reality, freedom means so much more than that. Jocko Willink with his discipline equals freedom is the number one that goes back to every time I think it, uh, that is a beautiful guiding principle to life. It, freedom is quite literally the rules, the rails, the, the taboos, the culture, the framework. Like you need a direction or your freedom just quickly becomes death. Freedom is not anarchy. Anarchy is death. And let's read this line again right here about why. That if we departed from common law principles, we would degenerate into anarchy and become the sport of the fury of conflicting passions. What is anarchy? It is the sport of the fury of conflicting passions. You may not be slave to the law or to rules anymore in an anarchical world, in this uh, 
paradise that you've built up, this paradise myth that you've built up in your mind, but now you are a slave to your conflicting passions and the sport of the fury of those conflicting passions lashing at each other where suddenly there's so much passion that's going there that you, that, that you don't have any direction to go. Nothing makes you happy and everything just falls. And when that happens, the transition from anarchy was to despotism, to an armed master, because someone's going to take control. Someone that has the discipline, someone that is not so easily bought with fantastical ideas of this utopian anarchy that everybody, I don't want to say everybody, that is pretty trendy to think about because the person that has the discipline and pays attention is going to come in the form of an armed master and they're going to take control again. Just, I mean, think about the genius of someone being able to take these vast, complicated ideas and condense them down into a few sentences that really pull out the meat of it and make it applicable to the common man and accessible. Unbelievable. The real danger to our liberties was not from a few provisional troops. The road to tyranny will be opened by making dependent judges, by packing juries, by stifling the press, by silencing leaders and patriots. You silence the people. That's the danger to your liberty. It was happening then. It's happened since then. It happens today. We see it online, particularly right now. You get sent. I mean, you say anything about really, I mean, you, you try to touch on any issues of gender and sexuality on YouTube, you're out. You try to touch on any political issues of importance with those, with those specific topics in mind on many social media platforms, you're out. To even discuss the option for debate on some of these things, what are we doing? We're silencing the leaders, the patriots. We're packing the juries. Back to our original point. I don't so much care what side of these issues or any issue you're going to fall on. I care about, do you stand for something? And that's what you should care about. Do you stand for something? And are you going to fight for that? And can you be loving and respectful to those? Can you fight in a legitimate, mature, and productive way? But be a leader, be a patriot, because the real danger to our liberties is not from a few provisional troops. And these are people speaking that lived in a time where Britain housed troops in their houses. Britain was killing their friends and family. They were oppressing these people. And they, having lived through that, have the balls to come up and say, your liberty is not a danger because of a few provisional troops and downplay it like that. It's danger when people become silenced, when we stifle the press, when people aren't allowed to speak openly the truth because... We're too afraid of offending people. It just speaks volumes into today, and I'm sure 100 years from now. So, History repeats itself, I suppose. Murder rouses to vengeance. It awakens sympathy and spreads alarm. But the most dangerous, the most sure, the most fatal of tyrannies was by selecting and sacrificing single individuals under the mask and forms of law by dependent and partial tribunals. Against such measures, we ought to keep a vigilant eye and take a manly stand. Whenever they arise, we ought to resist and resist till we have hurled the demagogues and tyrants from their imagined thrones. He concurred most readily with the learned counsel opposed to him in the opinion that the English were a free, a 
gloriously free people. The country is free where the people have a representation in the government so that no law can pass without their consent, and where they are secured in the administration of justice by the trial by jury. We have gone further in this country into the popular principle, and he cordially united his prayers with the opposite counsel that the experience with us might be successful. How do you know that you're free? When freedom is not anarchy, freedom is not losing the rules and the framework that guide your life. So how do you know that you're free? Well, it says it right here. Freedom, the country is free, where the people have a representation in the government so that no law can pass without their consent and where they are secured in the administration of justice the trial by jury. You want a definition of freedom? You want to know, are you really free? Look at it in perspective. This is the world we live in today. It's not just you in this country. It's not just your idea. It's not just my idea of what is right and wrong. It's not just my idea of how to live your life and what is sinful and who is God and why do you wake up in the morning and where are you going and where do you go after you die and what is a good way to conduct yourself while on this earth in the short time that you're given it's not just my perspective it's not just yours in this country it's ours and 340 million other people so looking at it in that perspective freedom cannot be and trust me you don't want it to be Everybody does whatever they want all the time. In representation and in perspective to other people, do you have representation in government? Yes. You have representation from your state, both in the House and the Senate. You are able to cast your vote to who goes in there. You have representation in your state Congress on a lower level. You have representation in a local government body through your town you have representation through local community stuff if you've made yourself a part of any community organizations in a church or a club or any other kind of junto as ben franklin might suggest and do you have a trial by jury if you do mess up are you subject to just what the government thinks your punishment should be or do you have a jury of your peers who can help check an oppressive government from you, for you, who can help protect you, and give you a more varied and fair perspective on what your punishment should be? Yes, we do have all of those things. And can a law pass without your consent? Well, the voting rates in this country, I don't believe in in my lifetime have ever passed 50 percent i could be wrong and i don't always remember the numbers exactly but you know what that's that's your consent if you choose not to exercise it or you choose to believe that it doesn't make a difference well that's on you but again look at it in the perspective of what can realistically be done to offer a usable and sustainable amount of freedom to the most amount of people in a country and still maintain civilization we have done that beautifully in the United States of America. Thank God it is still here a couple hundred years later. And we pray for the success of any leader from any side in any party to continue on that legacy. Question on the present libel 
ought to be again tried. It concerns the reputation of Mr. Jefferson. It concerned deeply the honor of our country. It concerned the fame of that bright and excellent character, General Washington, in which he had left a national legacy of inestimable value. He concluded by recapitulating the substance of the doctrine for which he contended in the following words. The liberty, number one, of the press consists in the right to publish with impunity truth with good motives for justifiable ends, though reflecting on government, magistracy, or individuals. Seems like a given today, but it was not a given, and it is only a given today because of great men like Alexander Hamilton and his partner, Mr. Kent, making these arguments that laid the framework to bring us into a society where that is second nature to us. You should be allowed to speak the truth with impunity and not be punished for it. Speak it with good motives, but speak it nonetheless. Get it out there. You should not be afraid to speak the truth simply because they are in government or because they are of a higher station than you or because they are better people than you. That's the world. There are a lot of better people than you. There are a lot of better people than me. We deserve so much less than we get every day. If you woke up today, if you ate food today, we deserve so much less, even in today's world. Get familiar. Number two, that the allowance of this right is essential to the preservation of a free government, the disallowance of it fatal. Number three, that its abuse is to be guarded against by subjecting the exercise of it to the animadversion and control of the tribunals of justice, but that this control cannot safely be entrusted to a permanent body of magistracy and requires the effectual cooperation of court and jury. Again, we see the necessity of the balance between the government control and having that power to enforce law and order, but also being balanced and checked by a jury of your peers to protect against the oppression of that government from getting out of control. It has to be both working in tandem. Congress, politics, we need multiple parties. We need discourse. We need disagreement. We need the push and pull. And as annoying and exhausting and hateful as it can be, whatever comes out the end of the end of that, we have to trust is going to be better than putting too much power in one person and hoping they do right by humanity. Because we've seen countless examples throughout human history where that has turned into the most horrific tragedies that that can really be imagined, things that we didn't know human beings were capable of. And you should read them, and you should become familiar with them to know exactly what we're talking about here. And you should read them with the perspective. You should read Hitler and the Holocaust. You should read Stalin and the Gulag, all of these things, and know that you are reading that and understanding that I am capable of that. Not reading that and thinking, what a disgusting person, how can anybody do that? Do that? But reading that and knowing that I am a human being, that is inside me too. I am capable of doing that. It is worth disciplining myself to prevent things like that from happening. It is worth knowing right from wrong and knowing truth and having purpose in my life and having good people in my life and checks and balances and relationships and things like that because we've seen what that can lead to. Scary, scary stuff. <clears throat> Number four, 
that to confine the jury to the mere question of publication and the application of terms, without the right of inquiry into the intent or tendency, reserving to the court the exclusive right of pronouncing upon the construction, tendency, and intent of the alleged libel, is calculated to render nugatory the function of the jury, enabling the court to make a libel of any writing whatsoever the most innocent or commendable. We've seen under the Sedition Acts, it got out of control. The term libel has been derailed, it's been abused, and it's silencing people and it's doing more harm than good. Let's add in the complications. Let's add in some new defense of truth, some new defense of circumstance. Let's look at every case and the nuances of it and then make a decision. We can be better than this. Number five, that it is the general rule of criminal law that the intent constitutes the crime. And that it is equally a generally a general rule that the intent, mind, or quo animo is an inference of fact to be drawn by the jury. Now let's get more into my realm too. I'm certainly no lawyer, but I do have a bachelor's degree in criminology. And that being said, it I suppose doesn't necessarily take a bachelor's degree in criminology to know this, but our criminal justice system today is obviously vastly more complicated than it was back then we've we've got a much more in-depth version of our laws and we have different varying degrees you know murder isn't just murder it's first second or third degree murder things like that that because we're looking at intent we're looking at the circumstances did they premeditate the murder was it an act of impulse and a loss of control? Was it something that they planned out? Was it someone that they knew, a stranger? You know, all of these things are taken to effect today. And this is kind of the stuff that laid the framework for that in our country specifically. And they didn't do it just by revelation from God. They got there by looking at what humans and governments have done before them and trying to build and trying to make it better. That's what humanity is about. Number six. That if there are exceptions to this rule, they are confined to cases in which not only the principal fact but its circumstances can be and are specifically defined by statute or judicial precedent. Number seven, that in respect to libel, there is no such specific and precise definition of facts and circumstances to be found, that consequently it is difficult, if not impossible, to pronounce that any writing is per se an exclusive of all, all circumstances libelous, that it, its libelous character must depend on intent and tendency, the one and the other being matter of fact. Number eight, that the definitions of descriptions of libels to be met with in books founded them upon some malicious or mischievous intent or tendency to expose individuals to hatred or contempt or to occasion a disturbance or a breach of the peace. That in determining, number nine, the character of a libel, the truth or falsehood is in the nature of things a material ingredient, though the truth may not always be decisive, but being abused may still admit of a malicious and mischievous intent which may constitute a libel. That in the Roman law, number 10, one source of the doctrine of a libel, the truth, in cases interesting to the public, was given in evidence that the ancient statutes probably declaratory of the common law make the falsehood an ingredient of the crime, that the ancient precedents in the courts of justice correspond, and that the precedents to this day charge a malicious intent. So, kind of adding a little more reason in there, I'll give you, if you just posted something malicious with bad intentions and it was completely false, well... You deserve some punishment for that. Let's keep that in check. And that generally holds true today. Number 11, that the doctrine of excluding the truth has immaterial originated in a tyrannical and polluted source. In the court of Star Chamber, and though it prevailed a considerable length of time, yet there are leading precedents down to the revolution and ever since, in which a contrary practice prevailed. 
Number 12, that the doctrine being against reason and natural justice and contrary to the original principles of the common law enforced by statutory provisions, the precedents which support it to be deserved deserve to be considered in no better light than a malice usus, which ought to be abolished. And finally, number 13, that in the general distribution of power in any system of jurisprudence, the cognizance of law belongs to the court, of fact to the jury, that as often as they are not blended, the power of the court is absolute and exclusive, that in civil cases it is always so, and may rightfully be so exerted, that in criminal cases the law in fact being always blended, the jury, for reasons of a political and peculiar nature, for the security of life and liberty, are entrusted with the power of deciding both law and fact. The jury has a big responsibility to balance the law and the fact, to protect from an oppressive government and still hold citizens accountable. And that is what a democracy is about, riding that line, checks and balances back and forth. Beautifully stated. There is so much more to that Croswell case, but... I just wanted to cover Hamilton's part, and we're going to slowly be moving into more Washington recently as I got the other Cherno book on Washington because I was so enchanted by Hamilton. And let me know if you guys have read that or you know, I highly, highly recommend the Hamilton Cherno book, best biography I've ever read. Previously, the best biography I think I've ever read was David McAuliffe's John Adams, which is also fantastic. But man, Cherno really did a number on that one. It's beautiful. So we heard talk of precedence in here, and earlier in the document of Hamilton's arguments, we heard talk of how law is built based on precedence, a precedent being the court deciding on how to interpret a law and then laws being enforced based on that view, I think would be a good way to define a precedent. One way that you can take that into your life today is we've heard recently about the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court didn't rewrite the law. They didn't write a new law. They set a precedent on the case. The original Roe v. Wade case decided on in 70s, the 71, I think it was, something like that, 73. They looked at that case. They reevaluated it discussed whether or not they thought it was constitutional based on who was there and their interpretation now, and then they decided to set a precedent overturning it, and now we enforce laws based on that precedent. This is how law is built. We did the same with the affirmative action case in the Supreme Court recently. Excuse me. So it's interesting to see that they understood that then. It's not that we're going to rewrite or write a new law for every way that our country runs, but we're going to set a precedent through the courts, through the judicial branch on the law that exists, and we're going to operate based on that view. It's a very important thing to note about, you know, just basic understanding of our system as a country. I think another hot take, the more that I've learned about Hamilton here People love Hamilton. We love to watch the musical. He's really trendy right now. He's pretty much everybody's favorite founding father because of, of the recent media boom that he's been a part of. And Cherneau had a huge, obviously, up to, like was basically the catalyst for all of this with his book. And rightfully so. Hamilton is a brilliant man. But hot take, we look at Hamilton, and I think there is no more hated man than Donald Trump today. And I'm not saying this to advocate for Trump necessarily. I mean, I am not going to get into all of that. I don't have a dog in that fight at this moment. So, but it is interesting. We hate Trump because of his scandalous affairs with women and his general well, flirtatious or demeaning, however you would want to put it, the way that he acts sexually with women. 
Hamilton had the Mariah Reynolds affair, which was then published in detail for all of the public to read. And that's just the only one we know about could be suspected of others and was extremely flirtatious with women in his life in all respect, including like what we can only guess what the relationship was between him and his sister-in-law because it was so close. And I don't mean to defame that by any means. And I'm not saying that derogatorily, just something to consider. We look at, you know, who was, who, who was hated the most while they were in the political scene. Donald Trump was just attacked without remorse every single second that he stepped foot on the political scene. Hamilton was the most hated figure for pretty much every second second that he was on the political scene. Even after he got out of politics, Donald Trump still years later, we're almost to another election, almost four years since he's been in office. And we hear Donald Trump in every single 24 hour news cycle, people consistently talking about him, hating on him, going after him. Hamilton was out of politics after leaving the treasury and the administration changed. He falls out of favor, loses influence. And still Hamilton is brought up constantly as a hated figure as someone who is constantly being accused of of british influence and trying to ruin the country and all of this ridiculous stuff it is so crazy to me to see the similarities there between the two and how one hamilton is so loved because he was so far distant in the past and two we have in many ways, a modern day Hamilton, I'm not going to compare like, you know, necessarily their impact on the country. I think you have to look in hindsight to really get an accurate and fair objective evaluation of that. But when they're that far in the past, it's easy to glorify them when they're right here. Now, it's easy to hate them. Do the same thing with sports figures and different things like that. Like, you know, just something to keep in mind, something to chew on. Like I said, I don't have a dog in that fight. I'm not going to try to hit you one way or the other, but just history has so much to teach us. I'm so grateful for the work that people went through in history and in writing and copying their letters and keeping them and the work that historians go through today and our governments goes through today to make public domain documents available for knowledge to be available to people who are free to be as intelligent or as stupid as they want to be. And that freedom is sacred and we should thank God for it every day. And I just love what we have here. I love sitting here at the end of the night, the lamp kicked back with a mic with some documents and just talking it out and having a good time, extremely relaxing, fulfilling. And I thank God to live in a country where I can do this safely where I can do this out of leisure, where I can do this, where I can learn simply for the sake of learning because there is food on my table, there is a roof over my head, and I don't have to fight for my life every day. I do not ever want to be desensitized to that blessing. And thank God for a mouth that can speak, a body that can be trained, a mind that can be disciplined. Like I said, we'll be moving into Washington a little bit later. That's it for this week. I'll catch you guys next week.